The following Marx Daily Apple article was written by Mark Sisson and is narrated by Brock Armstrong. How we're setting up our kids to be fat, sick, and unhappy. I've been on a bit of a children's health and wellness kick lately, with a couple of posts discussing the importance, and unfortunately dearth, of free play and exploration in our child's lives. Some of you have speculated via email that Carrie and I have something to announce, but that's definitely not the case. This is simply an important topic for everyone with a stake in the future of this world. The mental, physical, and spiritual health of our children today will determine our trajectory through history in the decades to come. If a fat, sick, and unhappy generation takes the reins of this planet, nothing good will come of it. Also, those are our kids. Once you've popped one out, it's your responsibility to give them the tools and environment they need to realize their potential. No, not a free ride, not a hand-holding session, but we need to provide the things that they, as infants, toddlers, and prepubescents, filled with simmering stews of hormones, cannot. The incredible thing about smaller, less mature humans is that they make pretty good decisions regarding health, fitness, activity, sleep, and every other lifestyle factor that we seek to optimize in this blog, if they are given the right environment. No micromanagement required. In fact, micromanagement of our children is one of the biggest impediments to their healthy growth and development. Okay, so what exactly is wrong with kids today? Why am I yelling at this cloud? Their parents are told to ignore their instincts early on. What's the first thing a new parent feels like doing when they behold that wrinkly red humanoid that just sprang from the mum's loins? Holding it close. Bare skin against bare skin. You don't want to whisk your newborn off to a nursery or have to wait patiently until the medical professionals run diagnostics and decide whether you can hold them or not. You want that thing in your arms right now. And when you get home, or maybe you did it at home, you just want to fall asleep with your new family member in the same room as you. Maybe even in the same bed as you. You probably don't want to leave your defenseless, utterly confused womb emigrant alone in an empty crib halfway across the house. You don't want to hear distant cries. You want that burbling, no-necked little monster making indecipherable coos, grunts, and farts, a necessary evil, onto your chest. But you ignore those instincts because you're not supposed to sleep with your baby. Unfortunately, you and your family may be missing out on some important, long-lasting benefits granted by co-sleeping. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with not co-sleeping. You don't have to do it, and babies turn out perfectly healthy and happy and well-adjusted, sleeping in their own beds. But if you want to co-sleep, don't fight the urge. Don't let the reigning conventional wisdom regarding baby sleeping arrangements dissuade you, because it's not based on sound science. That instinct is a powerful one, and I think it's probably important to heed it particularly if you practice safe co-sleeping. The important thing is that parents have lost trust in themselves. Don't. Get it back. 
Because once you start second-guessing your motherly and fatherly instincts, you're going down a stressful path. To live in conflict with oneself is untenable and unsustainable. You can't parent effectively like that. They spend most of their time sitting in chairs at school. Kids are active beings. They don't sit still. They don't like to sit still. They love to run, jump, crawl, leap, climb, squat down to look at some bugs or build a teepee with sticks, lift rocks to see what lurks underneath, throw things, often at each other, dance, and laugh. Put one down in a large grassy area and you'll see for yourself. They need to move, and we wring it out of them every time they go to school. We force them into chairs for eight hours a day, which is perfect training for future office workers, but terrible training for healthy human animals. What's the number one problem in first world nation adults, according to many researchers? We sit too much and it's killing us. So why do we force kids to do it when they're at their most vulnerable and malleable? What do we think is going to happen when they grow up? This is changing slowly. On Weekend Link Love, I linked to a number of classrooms doing trial runs with standing desks, and across the board, they've been successful at improving kids' focus and reducing behavioral incidents. And kids with ADHD who are allowed to squirm around on balance balls or ride stationary bikes in the classroom learn better. Kelly and Juliet Starrett are starting a nonprofit called Stand Up Kids that hopes to revolutionize the way classrooms are set up, so be sure to check them out. They spend most of their free time sitting in chairs and sofas at home, staring at screens. In 2010, the average time spent each day staring into electronic devices for an 8 to 18-year-old was 7.38 hours. A 2013 American Academy of Pediatrics study found the average 8-year-old uses electronic media for 8 hours a day, and teens average 11 hours a day. If that sounds like a bad idea, it is! Both kids with nighttime access to electronic devices, like smartphones and tablets, and kids with TVs in their room are more likely to be obese. Kids who use electronic devices after school are more likely to stay up late and sleep poorly. And kids who use electronic devices aren't moving, playing, exercising, or interacting face-to-face -face with peers and parents. They spend what little time remains sitting in chairs while being driven between home and school. Independent mobility is down. Way down. Rare is the sight of a kid biking or walking to school, the park, or just aimlessly on a lazy summer day. Now, cars pile up around the block to wait in line to drop individual kids off at school. Even if the parents wanted to let their kid walk unassisted, half the time it's not allowed by the school administration. Heck, Child Protective Services gets involved when a parent dares to let their kids walk half a mile alone to the park, even though it's never been safer to be a kid in the United States, and the same goes for most of the first world nations. Wealthy New York City parents are hiring playdate consultants. We've managed to stifle, confuse, and disrupt one of the most powerful forces in the known universe. 
a child's sense of play and desire to explore their surroundings. It's utter madness. When they do get to move around, they're wearing heeled shoes. Look, if you want to teeter around on heels as an adult, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that provided you accept the consequences and maybe try to take some steps to ameliorate the effect it has on your lower limbs. But kids don't buy their own shoes. For the first few years, they don't even put on their own shoes. <laughs> they don't really have the choice. For every positive degree of heel elevation, another joint along the kinetic chain has to compensate by a degree. Maybe it's your knee, or your hip, or your lower back. Maybe it's all of them. Whatever it is, even a slight heel throws the rest of your body out of alignment. You may be okay with that. You're used to it. But we should give our kids the chance to start fresh and establish motor patterns without the altered input from a heeled shoe. If they want to mess with their joint angles later, that's on them. For now, keep your kids' heels on the floor. They eat too much sugar. The other day I wrote about the average sugar intakes around the world, and the averages for all ages were quite high. The kids are way, way worse. In the US, boys get 16.3% of their energy from added sugars alone. For girls, it's 15.5%. Rates are similar across other nations. In theory, kids should be able to get away with a little more sugar than adults, especially if it's whole food sugar from something like fruit, but not if they're sitting around all day, failing to realize their essential natures as living balls of kinetic energy, and not if they're eating added sugar and missing out on all the nutrients that normally accompany sugar sources in whole foods. In today's kids, just one daily serving of sugar-sweetened beverages is linked to a 60% greater chance of obesity. They don't get enough time in nature. I've often said that nature is the default environment of the human genome. Our genes expect trees, grass, weeds, sand, desert vistas, rolling waves, gurgling brooks, rushing rivers, towering rainforests, and all the other things we associate with the great outdoors. Before agriculture, and for most people long after, that was the world. It wasn't a separate place. The wild frontier we explored and conquered, and today, pay a fee to access. It simply was. And if we adults are susceptible to inadequate amounts of time spent in the default environment, kids are even more sensitive. Nature deficit disorder is a real issue that research has linked to rising rates of depression, ADHD, obesity, and sedentary living. The more green space children can access, the more active they are, the less TV they watch, the more independently they explore the neighborhood, and the fewer behavioral problems they have, which applies to both green and blue space, or the beach. Forests seem to be especially effective at promoting greater physical activity and less sedentary time, far more than residential greenness or public parks, which were surprisingly associated with a greater risk of asthma and only a modest reduction in sedentary time. The wilder the better, I suppose. They're not sleeping enough. 
kid physiologies are finely tuned to their sleep needs if you let them. They rub their eyes the instant the pineal gland starts pumping out melatonin as a warning sign to everyone in the immediate vicinity, get me to bed or face the consequences. But we get in the way. We give them the aforementioned electronic devices to keep them quiet and save us from the burden of reading stories to them before bed. We keep the TV on late into the night. We install blue nightlights in their rooms to keep the boogeyman away and sleep away. We allow TVs and other small electronic screens in the bedroom which disrupt their sleep. The result is that 30 to 40% of kids don't get enough sleep each night, and what sleep they do get is often of poor quality. Plus, over 2 million kids have diagnosed sleep disorders. Even obstructive sleep apnea is prevalent enough in kids that it has its own name. Pediatric OSA. They take more prescription drugs than ever before. Diagnosis for anxiety, ADHD, depression, and eating disorders are way up in American kids, which is just sad. Some people worry about illegal drugs, but I find the prospect of our children filling more prescriptions chilling. Even though the prescription numbers don't seem astronomical on an absolute basis, but they're higher than they should be, and probably belie even higher numbers of kids with the conditions but no diagnosis or access to healthcare. How many kids who are suffering from depression, ADHD, and other conditions aren't taking prescriptions because they have no access to healthcare, or refuse to admit that they have a problem or tell their parents, let alone a doctor? Antidepressants are associated with suicidal thoughts and weight gain, and we don't even know if it actually works in kids. But the biggest, saddest issue in all of this is that we have millions of children who are so depressed that they need medication. They're still too fat. Although the obesity rate for the youngest Americans, 2 to 5 years old, has slightly declined by 8.4%, childhood obesity in general, for 2 to 19 year olds, has remained steady. And among all children, taught and teen alike, obesity rates remain elevated and are largely unchanged from a decade ago. The causes are multifactorial. Refer to everything I just mentioned for some strong candidates. So, addressing childhood obesity is a big, big job. Okay, so these are some of the problems facing our kids, and by extension, placing the future of our species in peril. What can we do? That's for another post at another time. For now, I want to hear from you. How would you address some of these issues? How have you addressed these issues in the children in your life? It's not quite so simple as go primal, is it? Thanks for listening, folks. Hey, Primal listeners, how would you like to access all your favorite Primal-approved foods and household goods for a fraction of the cost? Well, you can, just by visiting a new online shopping club called Thrive Market, where you can grab all your wholesome favorites at 25 to 50% off retail prices. And from April 29th to May 6th, you can take advantage of a once-in-a-lifetime promotion. Order anything from Thrive Market between the 
Chinese dates, and you'll receive a two-month free membership, $10 off your first order, a $10 coupon to PrimalBlueprint.com, and four digital books, including the best-selling Primal Blueprint Healthy Sauces, Dressings, and Toppings Cookbook, and two brand-new publications written by Mark Sisson. Visit MarksDailyApple.com thrive to learn how to claim your free gifts today because this kind of deal only happens once.